trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. We're going to just dive right in or jump in with both feet if you prefer that approach. I want to welcome James Chernowski, who is a policy analyst for Libertas Institute. James I only reach out to you when it's a really important case, but uh, I'm seeing some very serious rumblings about um, the repeal of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And this is based in uh, social media censorship and manipulation of information. So I can understand why people want to see this, but I think you're one of the very principled voices who's saying, not so fast. That would be a very bad idea. Um, I know technology is is kind of your background, but... um, Give us some of the reasons why people need to think twice before uh, we, we encourage Congress to repeal Section 230. Thanks for having me, Brian. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, I think, is just by far and large one of the most underappreciated uh, pieces of legislation that we've had in the past 30 years, basically. The law was created with the intention of actually being forward-looking and thinking about what the future of the digital realm was going to be. And this piece of legislation solved a major problem that used to exist prior to this because the online forum is a lot different than traditional media, so television, radio, newspaper. That that kind of delivery of, of information is just radically different than what we see happening with Facebook and Twitter where it's a lot of interactions between you and I. And Section 230 really allows companies to be able to allow for our kind of communication that we have on Facebook and Twitter to happen without having to also deal with the other problems that we see on the internet, whether that's uh, trolling or people trying to put up profane content like child porn, any of this horrible stuff that we don't want to see. It's, it's all possible because of Section 230. And if we just go and repeal it, it results in a lot less free speech for you, for me, for politicians. All the people that get to go and benefit from this lose out immensely. And if I'm understanding this correctly, James, that's because um, at this point, social media, whether we're talking Parler, whether we're talking Twitter, Facebook, uh, Rumble, any of these would have to very carefully vet information that's being posted. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Basically, what happened was that prior to Section 230, you had this problem called the moderator's dilemma. Basically, something would go up on a website and a a company like Facebook would have to determine, okay, should I keep this up or should I take this down? But prior to Section 230, that was not necessarily an easy decision to make because if they took it down, they could face potential liability problems. And if they left it up, you could have harmful talk content being exposed on the internet to people that we wouldn't want to see, like I said, pornography or uh, other objectionable content. And and we did not want that to happen. We want to allow companies like Facebook and Twitter that are going to have a lot of interaction with people uh, that are like you and me to have that, that, that leeway to be able to really sit there and, and, moderate that content so that way you and i could express ourselves freely on the internet but we don't have to have that problem of well you know should i be liable because i took down somebody's post uh where they said something 
And that, and that was a really critical problem that the internet was facing when it was first coming out in the nineties. And section two thirty really solves that problem. So walk us through if, if for instance, uh, the, the president were to prevail upon Congress, they were to repeal section two thirty. Um, what would people notice? And let's just, you know, I mean, pick one, pick one or more social media platforms. What would people notice as they went to post content? How, how would it likely change the way that, uh, that they would be able to do so? I think that you would see a drastic change in the way that the Internet, as we know it, would, would, would be experienced by people. So, for example, let's take Twitter, where you have 280 characters where you can go and send out any message you want into the digital world, right? Again, that's only made possible because of Section 230, where you can just instantly do that. And without Section 230, somebody will be able to put that up. Uh, and it might not be able to get taken down. Let's say I issue like a threat against you or something uh, or say something horrible uh, that we wouldn't normally want to see on Twitter. Now I wouldn't be able to flag that post and get it taken down because, again, because of the liability aspect, Twitter is not going to just instantly you know, turn around and, and make these kinds of decisions. Or on the front end, too, it can make that process of you getting content out there a lot slower, which is actually kind of ironic seeing a lot of people in traditional media pushing for this because – some of the biggest beneficiaries of Twitter have been journalists and 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 uh, news personalities, right? Now imagine if you're like a Tucker Carlson and you have to wait a couple of days before your, you know, your latest segment that you want to go and broadcast gets pushed out to the world because they have to review it and make sure that everything's above board. Um, that is kind of what is at risk here: is that your internet experiences and the way that we communicate with each other gets slowed down drastically, um, like an up and coming. Uh, industry, which is like streaming, let's say, they also are at a lot of risk because of Section 230 if that gets repealed. Because if it's repealed, Twitch is going to have a very hard time uh, debating whether or not they should allow people to actually host content on their website, especially if it's something where it's more like adult content and people are cursing or whatever. Twitch might not be comfortable with that liability, and therefore that means that less people get to really share with one another the things that we have in common that have really made the Internet so amazing over the past 30 years, basically. You're definitely speaking to, to my sense of, of reason as to, to why I'm okay, I'm okay with suffering um, that, that sometimes there are things about Twitter that I don't like. But when there is a breaking story, when I know, hey, something's going down, that is one of the first sources that I turn to simply because of the immediacy with which people can post content related to it. Absolutely. And I think that it's also worth noting, too, again, uh, Rick Santorum pointed this out in a recent op-ed in National Review. You're not forced to be on these platforms if you do not like the way that they handle their business. True. Twitter, Facebook have come under a lot of scrutiny from conservatives, and that's why you saw the rise of, of Parler. And because of YouTube's policies, that's why you've seen the rise of Rumble. Uh, so there are alternatives out there, and there there are other ways of handling this if you're truly disgruntled with the way that you think that Facebook and Twitter handle things. Well, and, and you and I had a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago on uh, moving forward with Young Voices, and I thought you had a very viable solution, and that is don't bring in the brute force of government to try to solve this. Instead, turn to the market, which has a tendency to solve things peacefully and voluntarily. Absolutely. Again, to go back to that conversation at the time, Parler had just surpassed the four plus million user mark um, after after the election as a result of everything that had been going down with Twitter, where everything was getting slapped with labels and and conservatives were really just not having it. And now to date, uh, based off that Rick Santorum article, he actually said that Parler crossed the 10 million user threshold, wow. which is amazing. Rumble. 
uh, which is the alternative to YouTube, has over 60 million users now. That is an amazing thing to think, right? That's a lot of people that, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter could have otherwise had. Um, but they're now actually losing some of their attention that they would have otherwise had on these platforms because of the decisions they're making. And if they want to retain those people, they're going to make changes in their moderation practices or they're going to try to do something to rectify it because they can't afford to lose conservative voices on their platforms. Well, you you make two points that I hope will stick in the hearts and minds of my listeners, and that is, number one, nobody is sticking a gun in your ribs and forcing you to go on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. And, and secondly, there are alternatives out there. Some of them may not be as big yet. But uh, what you've seen happen with with Rumble and what you've seen happen with Parler, I think, is pretty encouraging in that it shows that uh, people will take advantage when they have an option other than, well, I guess we just have to stick with what we already have. Absolutely. I think the I think the biggest thing that it also pushes back on is the notion of uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google being these these big, powerful monopolies that, that everybody wants to take antitrust action against, because at the end of the day, when we see Parler do as well as it's doing, when you see Rumble doing as well as it's doing, what it's telling you is that it's not as clean cut as some of these politicians want to make it sound like. And there is there is some you know promise in market force from people if they are if they have that conviction, it can happen. So that's why you need to continue really just pushing for these alternatives, figuring out what works best for you, and just letting the market do its thing. Now, I have one quick question to ask you. We've got about 45 seconds left here, James. Um, The one thing that intimidates a lot of people is, but I have to learn a new way. And we're creatures of habit. Are there plenty of tutorials out there to walk people through how to use and how to access these new platforms? Oh, absolutely. It's it's a very simple process. As a matter of fact, you could probably go onto YouTube and find videos on how to install these same apps that are their competitors. So it's very easy. It's just a matter of taking the time to, to learn how to figure it out. And being brave enough. Stiff upper lips and all that. James Chernowski, policy analyst with Libertas Institute. Thank you so much for a few minutes of your precious time today. I really appreciate you coming on board and talking about this with me. Thanks, Brian. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Can I confess something? Well, actually, like you have a choice, right? He's got the microphone. <laughs> There's nobody who can shut him off unless we can get the power company to cooperate. Now, I got uh, I got a nice uh, uninterrupted power supply, too. But um, here's what I want to confess. More and more, I am starting to realize how much I miss the normalcy of just being able to drop what I'm doing in the evening when there's nothing going on and just go grab a frozen yogurt with friends or just, you know, go for a walk or whatever. I This is probably the thing I resent most about uh, the age of COVID. 
is how it makes everything become kind of like a, a risk assessment to, you know, meeting. Okay. So here's what we know about the disease. Here's what we know about the infection rate. Here's what we have in terms of our own personal protection. We've got our goggles and our bio suits and our masks. Because you know what I really miss? And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way, but I just got to get this off my chest. I miss that I can't just pick up the phone on a whim and call my good friend Carl, the C-Train as we call him, and say, hey, let's go grab something to drink. Hey, let's, uh, let's go throw a Frisbee, whatever the case may be. And it's not because Carl is paranoid about COVID. It's because we're all at this heightened sense of, well, you know, we'd like to see you guys, but uh, maybe, maybe we could drive by and wave at you as we go by or something. I'm not trying to be uh, blind to the risks out there. I'm just, I'm just frustrated that the, the simple things, the small pleasures in life are the things that uh, that are, are, it turns out, the hardest to do under these conditions. And I'm determined not to let fear rule my life. And so I find myself a little frustrated. Nonetheless, I, again, I know I'm not the only one. Let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Now, if you are like me, you've no doubt heard a lot about it. Maybe you've been, I don't know if you've been watching the uh, the value of Bitcoin going up and up and up. Maybe you follow other cryptocurrencies. But if you need to expand your understanding of what Bitcoin is, or for that matter, why it even has value in the first place, came across a terrific essay by Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. This one landed in my email box today, my inbox today, I should say. And it's a pretty good primer on what it is and why that value keeps going up. By the way, this is not a pitch to you know convince you. Therefore, buy Bitcoin or invest in some other cryptocurrency. But if you want to know, why would people turn to these cryptocurrencies? Why would they go to this blockchain technology? Well, here's some of the reason why. Jeff Tucker says, even after 11 years experience and a per Bitcoin price of nearly $20,000, the incredulous are still with us. But he says, I understand why Bitcoin is not like other traditional financial assets. Even describing it as an asset is misleading. It's not the same as a stock, as a payment system or a money. It has features of all of these, but it's not identical to them. He says what Bitcoin is depends on its use as a means of storing and porting value, which in turn rests of secure titles to ownership of a scarce good. So those without experience in the sector look at all of this and they get frustrated that understanding why it is valuable isn't so easy to grasp. He says in this article, he says, I'm updating an analysis that I wrote six years ago. But he says that analysis still holds up for those who don't want to slog through the entire article. He says, my thesis is that Bitcoin's value obtains from its underlying technology, which is an open source ledger that keeps track of ownership rights and permits the transfer of these rights. Now, Bitcoin managed to bundle its unit of account with a payment system that lives on the ledger. That's innovation. And that's why it obtained a value and that value continues to rise. He says, consider the criticism offered by traditional gold advocates who have for decades pushed the idea that sound money must be backed by something real, hard and independently valuable. Bitcoin doesn't qualify, right? Well, he says, maybe it does. Bitcoin first emerged as a possible competitor to national government managed money back in 2009. Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper was released October 31st, 2008. 
The structure and language of this paper sent the message. This currency is for computer technicians, not economists, nor political pundits. The paper circulation was limited. Novices who read it were mystified. But the lack of attention didn't stop history from moving forward. Two months later, those who were paying attention saw the emergence of the Genesis block, the first group of bitcoins generated through Nakamoto's concept of a distributed ledger that lived on any computer node in the world that wanted to host it. Now here we are all these years later, and a single bitcoin trades at $18,500. The currency is held and accepted by many thousands of institutions, both online and offline. Its payment system is very popular in poor countries without vast banking infrastructures, but also in developed countries. And major institutions, including the Federal Reserve, the OECD, the World Bank, and major investment houses, are paying respectful attention and weaving blockchain technology into their operations. He says enthusiasts who are found in every country say its exchange value will soar even more in the future because its supply is strictly limited. And it provides a system vastly superior to government money. Bitcoin is transferred between individuals without a third party. It is relatively low cost to exchange. It has a predictable supply. It's durable, fungible, and divisible. All crucial features of money. It creates a monetary system that doesn't depend on trust and identity, much less on central banks and government. It is a new system for a digital age. Now, he says, for those educated in the hard money tradition, the whole idea has been a serious challenge. In fact, Jeff Tucker says, speaking for myself, I'd been reading about Bitcoin for two years before I came anywhere close to understanding it. There was just something about the whole idea that bugged me. You can't make money out of nothing, much less out of computer code. Why does it have value then? There must be something amiss. This is not how we expected money to be reformed. But he said, that's the problem. Our expectations we should have been paying closer attention to Ludwig von Mises' theory of money origins, not to what we think he wrote, but to what he actually did write. In 1912, Mises released The Theory of Money and Credit, and it was a huge hit in Europe when it came out in German and when it was translated into English. While covering every aspect of money, his core contribution was in tracing the value and price of money, and not just money itself, to its origins. That is, he explained how money gets its price in terms of the goods and services it obtains. He later called this process the regression theorem, and as it turns out, Bitcoin satisfies the conditions of the theorem. Now, Mises' teacher, Carl Menger, demonstrated that money itself originates from the market, not from the state, and not from social contract. It emerges gradually as monetary entrepreneurs seek out an ideal form of commodity for indirect exchange. Instead of merely bartering with each other, people acquire a good not to consume, but to trade. And that good becomes money, the most marketable commodity. But Mises added that the value of money traces backwards in time to its value as a bartered commodity. Mises said that this is the only way money can have value. Quote, the theory of the value of money as such can trace back to the objective exchange of money only to the point where it ceases to be the value of money and merely becomes the value of a commodity. If in this way we continually go farther and farther back, we must eventually arrive at a point where we no longer find any component in the objective exchange value of money that arises from valuations based on the function of money as a common medium of exchange. 
where the value of money is nothing other than the value of an object that is useful in some way other than as money. Mises says before it was usual to acquire goods in the market, not for personal consumption, but simply in order to exchange them again for the goods that were really wanted, each individual commodity was only accredited with that value given by the subjective valuations based on its direct utility. Okay, that's a lot of economic talk. But Mises' explanation solved a major problem that had long mystified economists. It's a narrative of conjectural history, but it makes perfect sense, says Jeffrey Tucker. Would salt have become money had it otherwise been completely useless? How about beaver pelts? Would they have obtained monetary value had they not been useful for clothing? We'll come back to this article just the other side of news. Stay with us, please. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're talking about Bitcoin. Why does Bitcoin have value? And I understand just saying the word Bitcoin is an automatic glaze over some people's eyes. Oh, boy. Here we go. One of those cryptocurrency nuts. Look, I don't know enough about Bitcoin to be a cryptocurrency nut. But my friends who are uh, who are really into cryptocurrency, I don't think they're up in the night. I don't think they're gullible. I don't think they are easily misled. Frankly, they are among some of the most intelligent, well-studied people that I know. Which is frustrating because I think, dang it. I don't know if I'll ever understand Bitcoin then at this rate. I'm sharing an essay from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And he is he points out, and I think this is worth considering, if Bitcoin really was just this pie in the sky thing, yeah, 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 a bunch of nerds getting together, making their own money. Why would organizations like the Federal Reserve, among others, the World Bank, major investment houses, why would they be working this technology into their own systems. Now, see, the conspiracy theorist in me says, well, they want to get control of it. And I still believe that's probably a possibility. Their power comes from control of money supplies. And this is a very decentralized kind of uh, money. But he uses a quote here from uh, von Mises about, uh, about where the value of money comes from in the first place. And to me, this makes sense, even even as a layman, the idea that, uh, you know, the, there's a usefulness to it that uh, that makes it a commodity of sorts. And he asked the question as we were going to break, you know, would salt have become money if it had otherwise been completely useless? How about beaver pelts if they hadn't been useful for clothing? He asks the question, this is Jeff Tucker asking, would gold or silver have had have mon- monetary value? If they had no value as commodities first, and he says the answer in all cases of monetary history is clearly no. The initial value of money before it becomes widely traded as money is originating in its direct utility. It's an explanation that's demonstrated through historical reconstruction. That's a Mises regression theorem. Now, at first, he says Bitcoin would seem Bitcoin would seem to be an exception. You can't use Bitcoin for anything other than money. You can't wear it as jewelry. You can't make a machine out of it. You can't eat it or even decorate with it. 
Its value is only recognized as a unit that facilitates indirect exchange. And yet, Bitcoin already is money. It's used every day. You can see the exchanges in real time. It's not a myth. It's the real deal. And so Jeff Tucker says it might seem like we have to choose. Is Mises wrong? Maybe we have to toss out his whole theory. Or maybe his point was purely historical and doesn't apply in the future of a digital age. Or maybe his regression theorem is proof that Bitcoin is just an empty mania with no staying power because it can't be reduced to its value as a useful commodity. And yet, he says, you don't have to resort to complicated monetary theory in order to understand the sense of alarm surrounding Bitcoin. He says, many people, as I did, just have this feeling of uneasiness about money that has no basis in anything physical. Sure, you can print out a Bitcoin on a piece of paper, but having a paper with a QR code or a public key is not enough to relieve that sense of unease. And so he asks, How can we solve this problem? How can we resolve this problem? He says, in my own mind, I toyed with the issue for more than a year. It puzzled me. I wondered if Mises' insight applied only in a pre-digital age. He says, I followed the speculations online that the value of Bitcoin would be zero, but for the national currencies into which it's converted. Perhaps the the demand for Bitcoin overcame the demands of Mises' scenario because of a desperate need for something other than the dollar. But he says, as time passed, and I read the work of Conrad Graff, Peter Serta, and Daniel Krawitz, finally the resolution came. Bitcoin is both a payment system and a money. The payment system is the source of value, while the accounting unit merely expresses that value in terms of price. The unity of payment and money is its most usual, unusual feature. And he says, it's the one that most commentators have had trouble wrapping their heads around. That's because we're all used to thinking of currency as separate from payment systems. This thinking is a reflection of the technological limitations of history. There's the dollar, and there are credit cards. There's the euro, and there is PayPal. There's the yen, and there are wire services. In each case, money transfer relies on third-party service providers. So in order to use them, you need to establish what's called a trust relationship with them which is to say that the institution arranging the deal has to believe that you're going to pay. This wedge between money and payment has always been with us, except for the case of physical proximity. If I give you a dollar for your pizza slice, there is no third party. But payment systems, third parties, and trust relationships become necessary once you leave geographic proximity. That's where companies like Visa and institutions like banks become indispensable. They are the application that makes the monetary software do what you want it to do. Now, he says the hitch is that the payment systems we have today are not available to just anyone. In fact, a vast majority of humanity does not have access to such tools, which is a major reason for poverty in the world. The financially disenfranchised are confined to only local trade. They cannot extend their trading relationships with the world. He says a major, yet uh, if not primary, purpose of developing Bitcoin was to solve this problem. The protocol set out to weave together the currency issue with a payment system. And so the two are interlinked in the structure of the code itself. This connection is what makes Bitcoin different from any existing national currency and really any currency in history. Now he has a quote here from Nakamoto from the introductory abstract to his white paper. And in this, he says, observe how central the payment system is to the monetary system he created. 
Now, it's a fairly detailed paragraph. I'm not going to share it. I encourage you instead to go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and click on this article by Jeffrey Tucker. But what Tucker notes from this quote from Nakamoto is what's very striking about the paragraph he shares is there's not even one mention of the currency unit itself. There's only the mention of the problem of double spending, which is to say the problem of inflationary money creation beyond which the protocol would otherwise permit. The innovation here, even according to the words of its inventor, is the payment network, not the coin. The coin, or digital digital unit rather, only expresses the value of the network. It's an accounting tool that absorbs and carries the value of the network through time and space. Now, the network is the blockchain. It's a ledger that lives in the digital cloud, a distributed network, and it can be observed in operation by anyone at any time. It's carefully monitored by all users. It allows the transference of secure and non-repeatable bits of information from one person to any other person anywhere in the world. And these information bits are secured by a digital form of property title. This is what Nakamoto called digital signatures. His invention of the cloud-based ledger allows property rights to be verified without having to depend on some third-party trust agency. Blockchain charged what came to be known as the Byzantine General's Problem. This is the problem of coordinating action over a large geographic range in the presence of potentially malicious actors. Because generals separated by space have to rely on messengers, and this reliance takes time and trust, no general can be absolutely sure that the other general has received and confirmed the message, much less its accuracy. Putting a ledger to which everyone has access on the Internet solves this problem. The ledger records the times, the amounts, the public addresses of every transaction. The information is shared across the globe and always gets updated. The ledger guarantees the integrity of the system and allows the currency unit to become a digital form of property with a, tit- with a title. And Jeff Tucker says once you understand this, you can see that the value proposition of Bitcoin is bound up with its attached payment network. That's where you find the use value to which Mises refers. It's not embedded in the currency unit but rather in the brilliant and innovative payment system on which Bitcoin lives. If it were possible for the blockchain to somehow be separated from Bitcoin, and really this is not possible, he says the value of the currency would instantly fall to zero. Now there's more to this article. I'm going to encourage you to explore this on your own, but that's the first time I've read something that really, I think, uh, added some needed pieces to that puzzle so I could better understand what is it that makes Bitcoin viable. I had this conversation with a coworker some couple of years ago because I was like, well, what if the electricity goes? What if a big EMP happens and suddenly computers aren't available? And, and his response was, you know, that could happen. It's within the realm of possibility. But his next question was, but everywhere in the world at the same time? Yeah, probably not. And I have to admit, there's a lot going for this particular brand of cryptocurrency whether it's Bitcoin or some other form of of cryptocurrency. Maybe it merits a a little bit closer look. I'm certainly not going to be your financial advisor. But I think the decentralization that comes along with this and the power that it puts back in your hands and my hands might just make this something worth studying out a bit further. What do you think? We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome to the final segment of this hour. By the way, I am going to kick the phone lines open now. Sorry, I've had a caller who's been persistent trying to get through. 801-331-8113. Seriously, let's talk. All right. A couple other things that I have in today's show notes, and, and I strongly encourage you, go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Um, I almost always have more articles and more uh, information that I'm able to get to in the course of each hour of the show. And it's a two-hour daily show. Uh, the nice thing is, if you catch the podcast version, I edit it down. I take out most of the commercial content, and uh, you, you end up with a couple of nice, roughly 20, 21-minute long segments, which should be easily digestible, say, commuting between home and work or work and home this is not an accident this is actually some brilliant planning on uh, someone else's part who shared that information with me and then i put it into use so wish i could take credit for it but i can't a couple other things that i have on today's agenda um one thing that i'm not going to be able to share a lot of time but you need to see the charts to really uh appreciate it One of the keys to recognizing good public policy from bad public policy is understanding whether that public policy involves positive rights or negative rights. Now, we're talking about legal concepts here, and I understand the law can get a little bit complicated. But Daniel J. Mitchell has this incredible primer illustrating the crucial difference between positive and negative rights and explaining which of these is congruent with property properly limited government. I'll just give you the thumbnail sketch here, but I encourage you to look at the article in today's show notes and and check it out for yourself. It's a very detailed but easily understandable um, essay. Positive rights are things which increase your obligations to government. They increase government's power over you would be another way of putting it. Negative rights are things which decrease government's power over you. In other words, they limit the power of government. Shall not be infringed. Congress shall not. Those are those are the kind of laws that refer to negative rights. I know it kind of seems like it's flipped on its head, right? You would think, well, if it's negative, wouldn't that be the bad part? Nope. Those negative rights do not create an obligation other than for people to leave you alone in this area. Not just government, but other people cannot infringe on those rights. Positive rights, it's, it's kind of like the whole, uh, well, the Constitution is a living document. If you say, no, it isn't, well, you're saying it's a dead letter then? Uh-huh, see? <laughs> it's, it's like a rhetorical trick almost. No, it's just, it's, it's not a living, evolving, breathing thing that somehow morphs into whatever those in power at the time want it to be. And if you can understand that, it's not a dead letter by any by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not something that uh, that simply like a chameleon adapts magically to uh, to whatever is wanted at the moment. So check out this primer between the difference between positive rights and negative rights. I think you'll find it very, very useful. One last thing I wanted to share with you was an article from Ryan McMacken. This is from the uh, Mises dot org website, the Von Mises Institute. Why Governments Hate Decentralization and Local Control. 
Now, we were just talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in the last segment. These are all examples of decentralization. And decentralization is something that that is actually very important for your individual freedom as well as your local governance. In other words, I'm not saying that there should be no government whatsoever, but the more local it is, the less likely it is to get out of control because you actually have influence. You see the representatives. You see those who are responsible for the laws, the ordinances, the statutes. When you go grocery shopping, when you sit by, well, when you used to sit by them in church. Seems like grocery shopping is about the only place we're likely to encounter people that we know these days. Ryan McMacken says, in recent decades, many have claimed that advances in communications and transportation would eliminate the different political, economic, and cultural characteristics peculiar to residents of different regions within the United States. He says, it is true the cultural difference between a rural mechanic and an urban barista is smaller today than was the case in 1900. Yet recent national elections suggest that geography is still an important factor in understanding the many differences that prevail across different regions within the U.S. urban centers, suburban neighborhoods, and rural towns are still characterized by uh, certain cultural, religious, and economic interests that are hardly uniform across the landscape. He says, in a country as large as the United States, of course, this has been a reality for a long time a reality of American life. But even in far smaller countries, such as the larger states of Europe, the problem of creating a national regime designed to rule over a large, diverse population has long preoccupied political theorists. At the same time, the problem of limiting the state power has especially been of interest to proponents of classical liberalism, including its modern variant, which you would know as libertarianism, who are concerned with protecting human rights and property rights from the grasping power of political regimes. So Ryan McMacken says the de facto answer to this problem, unfortunately, has been to empower national states at the expense of local self-determination and institutions, which had long provided barriers between individual persons and powerful nation-states. Some liberals, such as John Stuart Mill, have endorsed this, thinking that mass democracy and national legislatures could be employed to protect the rights of regional minorities. But not all liberals have agreed, and some have understood, that decentralization and the maintenance of local institutions and local power centers can offer a critical obstacle to state power. Now, from here, McMacken goes through the growth of the state, the decline of local powers. If you've been paying attention, this is something you have seen very clearly taking place, especially within the last 20 to 30 years, although it's been going on a lot longer. In the United States, I would argue that a major shift in this took place around about 1865. If you can think of anything that may have happened in or around that time um, to the present time, but it has definitely increased. And one of the pieces of evidence that I would offer for this is in my home state of Utah. The governor very openly uh, renewed a state of emergency strictly on the pretext, well, if we don't have this, we don't get the federal dollars. And, you know, with every federal dollar comes corresponding strings, conditions and influence. Ryan McMacken talks about the power of local allegiance, local customs. And why that's important. There's some great historical perspective here as well. He also talks about uh, how ultimately local institutional strength is the key for protecting 
people from government becoming too oppressive. And he has a couple of different uh, different uh, sources that he quotes here, but this is one quote in particular that really jumped out at me. Local interests and memories contain a principle of resistance, which government allows only with regret and which it is keen to uproot. It makes even shorter work of individuals. It rolls its immense mass effortlessly, effortlessly over them as over sand. That's because decentralization breaks up that grasp of power. And, and I, I don't want you to think that, well, you're saying that everybody in power is evil. No, but a lot are. <laughs> can, can we at least admit that? How many people do you know who, once they've had a taste of power, say, yeah, that's really not for me? Most of them like it. Most of them tend to think, well, no, this is a good thing and I can be trusted with it. And even the most principled elected people that I have known will tell you if you talk to them, you know, quietly and privately, they will confess. Yeah, there comes a time where you start to believe these people need me. I'm the only one who can do this. They start believing their own press releases. Best solution is break up that power, decentralize it, keep it distributed across as many people or as many institutions as possible, and it's less likely that it will be abused. And Ryan McMacken says this local institutional uh, strength is key because for constant state power, because for this one commentator whose last name is Constant, state power can be successfully limited when it is possible to skillfully combine institutions and place within them certain counterweights used against the vices and weaknesses of men. Now, he says, unfortunately, it appears even the last few institutional vestiges of localism are under attack from the forces of political centralization. Now, this could be attacks on Brexit in Europe, denunciations of the Electoral College in the U.S., even limited and weak appeals to local control and self-determination are met with the utmost contempt from countless pundits and intellectuals. Two centuries after Tocqueville and Constant, regimes still recognize decentralization as a threat. And those who seek to limit state power, he says, should take the hint. What that means to me is this is where we need to be focusing our efforts. Go for much more local governance. I shouldn't say more local governance. Go for restoring that control to the to the local level. And even there, minimizing it as much as possible by solving as many of your problems yourself as you possibly can. That is the ultimate of decentralization. This is The Brian Hyde Show.